Just before dawn, Paul urged them on to eat as they're all panicking. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of them all. And he broke it and he began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. One of the most difficult tasks that a person can actively and willfully engage in is the climbing of Mount Everest, okay? Tallest mountain peak in the world. Uh, I know there's far more difficult things that someone can do, but this is like people are signing up and paying exorbitant amounts of money to climb Mount Everest. Mount Everest stands at 29,032 feet. I don't know how that's the number we came to because I I don't know who's got that tape measure out. I don't know how that works. Uh, But 29,032 feet. And uh, here's what this process looks like to climb these 29,032 feet. Before we hop into that, I feel like I know us well enough. But So I'm going to be shocked if someone raises their hand. But has anyone ever here ever summited Everest? No? Okay. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Wasn't expecting it. Not that you guys couldn't. You guys can do anything you set your minds to, but I would just be shocked. None of us in here could probably do it, though. Uh, So here's what it looks like. There is a base camp. Matt, if you want to jump to the next picture. It's not on this picture. And then there are four additional camps in order to get to the top of Everest. And so um, the, the base camp is everyone kind of hikes in takes all their stuff with them, and then you go up, and you have to do it incrementally, and you have to do it incrementally because there is, uh, because of the elevation, there's a lack of oxygen. This one got me above 11,500 feet. There's only, so I don't know what our elevation is here compared to sea level, but it can't be much, okay? It's under 1,000 is what I was going to say. It can't be that much. (coughs) Um, Above 11,000 feet, there is 65% of the oxygen that we kind of experience <coughs> down here in the Midwest. Uh, base camp, so that's at 11,000 feet. At base camp starts at 17,000 feet. So I don't know what the number jumps to there at base camp, but uh, it becomes infinitely harder to breathe because of the elevation that you're at, the air so thin, everything, like you're just gasping all the time. In fact, when you get to the top, a lot of it is just oxygen driven. They've they've got all these tanks that they're carrying around with them. Uh, And above 25,000 feet, so keep in mind the the summit is just a a hair over 29,000 feet. Above 25,000 feet, it is impossible, humanly impossible, uh, aside from oxygen, to survive more than three or four hours. Your body just can't keep up with how thin the air is. And so, and it, it, your body can't ever acclimatize or like get used to it. And so it's just, when you to get to the summit, it's just a mad dash up and down, just trying to play with death getting in, <clears throat> in and out. Um, now, here's the thing. There's all these people, and typically, because it costs a lot of money, they're incredibly wealthy people that are climbing Everest. Um, but it is growing increasingly. I don't ever want, I'm never going to climb Everest. One, I don't, I don't have the financial resources to. And either, even if I did, I have no desire to flirt with death in that way. I just, I don't. Um, 
but I do want to honor the people that make it possible for all these really wealthy businessmen and women to go climb Everest. And it's a people group known as the Sherpas. Now, Sherpas often gets used as like a generic term for, term for people toting stuff around. But Sherpa is actually a people group from this specific area on the border of uh, Nepal and China. And Sherpas, because they are from this region, their bodies are just, have just grown over time to be accustomed to the harsh conditions. Uh, they have be- better lung capacity, so they're not relying on the oxygen as much. They know the terrain because they grew up around it. Uh, they're just uh, better at doing it. And so uh, Sherpas have carved out an industry for themselves which is guiding people through the throes of death in order to to help them reach this summit. Sherpas make a living, uh, and it's a a pretty decent living. There's some, uh, I I think they're underpaid because if someone was doing all this for me, there's no amount of money that I could give them that would be worth what they're doing. Uh, But like typical, uh, uh, typical income for someone in this area of Nepal would be like, five, six hundred dollars a year, which is not very much money. They live in destitute poverty. But at the same time, a Sherpa makes like five, six thousand dollars a year. So time, what is that, times ten? Times, they make a lot more than the average person in this community because they're doing all this incredibly dangerous work. Um, one of the things that, that stood out to me was uh, there's this place, and this is like to get to Camp 2, I think. And there's this place called... Um, the icefall. And Matt, you want to throw that picture up of what the icefall? The icefall is made up of all these crevices that, um, <coughs> that are just like sheer drops down into the ice. <laughs> Rhonda's shaking her head like, are you scared just looking at that? It's frightening. Uh, sheer, and they, they stick these ladder bridges over them. And here's the thing. When you go to the top of Everest as a climber, if you're going up, chances have it, you're going to go across the icefall, which is this big stretch of land. You're going over these crevices and having to navigate this specific way maybe three or four times. You might have to go there and back and then uh, there on the way up again because sometimes there's these acclimatization exercises to do. There and back. So maybe three or four times. In the course of a climbing season, which is two or three months, in the course of a climbing season, the average Sherpa is going to go over these icefalls uh, usually in the, in the ballpark of like 30 to 40 times. One's enough for me, and they're doing it 30 to 40 times. Uh, but here's the thing. They earn their keep because they know the rhythms of the mountain. They know the rhythms of the weather. They know the rhythms of climbing. They know the dangers. They know the paths. They have uh, well-trodden history that is able then to guide people safely to what we'll call the, the triumph or the glory of the very literal mountaintop experience. So let's turn a corner and bring this over to Acts 27, our, our text for this morning. Just as the Sherpas, the Sherpa people, have a distinct responsibility and ability to guide people through the most difficult of circumstances to get them to the triumph of the mountaintop, we, as Jesus followers, have the ability and responsibility to guide people through a world that is falling apart around us. 
a world that is groaning for the, the redemption of all things, groaning for the new heaven and the new earth, we have the ability and the responsibility to very literally Sherpa people through this life as we shepherd and guide and help and point the direction for. And we have trodden this path, but we know what it means to walk this path as Jesus followers, uh, to walk this path as people with hope and with purpose and with meaning and with love and mercy, all these things in our life. We have the ability and responsibility to guide for others. So let's, let's zoom in to Acts 27 and see what this looks like for uh, the Apostle Paul as we uh, begin to close out our time in the book of Acts. Now this is an incredibly, uh, I say ordinary situation that Paul finds himself in, but I can't say ordinary because I can't remember the last time I was like in danger of shipwreck, uh, but it seems like an like a ordinary, like a, not a holy situation. And Paul's advice, honestly, doesn't seem terribly holy, but I think that if we zoom in a little bit, <coughs> the world, uh, it, it shows us how we can engage in the middle of chaos. There's a, a, a book coming out that I, from a, a pastor that I follow, and it's called When the World Breaks. And I think that's an apt description for uh, things that can go on around us, when the world breaks, um, when, when there's that natural disaster, when there's brokenness in relationship, when there's a, a global tragedy or when there's a local tragedy, when there's a, a diagnosis, when there's unrest or uncertainty, <clears throat> when the world begins to feel like it's crumbling around us, what do we as Jesus followers do to insert hope and love into the situation? And so, <clears throat> again, Paul on his way to Rome, on the ship, storm uh, gets stirred up, and the, the crew members are freaking out, and here is what Paul says. Paul says, uh, hey, why don't you eat something? Why don't you, why don't you get a sandwich? Why don't, why don't you put some food in that belly? For the last 14 days, you've gone without food. Let's just let's calm down a little bit. Let's not lose our minds. Let's not, let's not overreact here. And if, again, if I'm in this situation, I'm looking at Paul and going, overreact? We're about to die. There's a storm, and we're on a boat. We're getting tossed around like we're in a bathtub. And Paul goes, let's just, let's all get some food so we can think kind of rationally. Now, what possesses Paul to think this is the right thing to say in this moment? This is, a, this is a literally a Snickers commercial. Like, you hungry? Grab a Snickers. And so what possesses Paul? And I think here's what Paul is recognizing in this situation. Paul recognizes that there is a hope that goes beyond their situation. So we as Jesus followers have a hope because we know we have a future that is secure. Paul's remembering back, we didn't read it, but in verse 25, uh, God has this encounter with Paul. Uh, he says in verse 25, keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God. It will happen just as he told me. What did God tell him? Paul told, or God told Paul that he was going to be delivered so that he could testify safely. So Paul's looking back, he's remembering the promises of God, he's remembering the hope that he has from the promises of God, and so he's letting that affect his situation. And that's what gives him the goal and the, the audacity to, in a moment of panic and chaos, go, let's all just get something to eat. Now we have a similar hope. And it may be not be a specific situational hope for whatever you're walking through. 
Because we're not promised healing on this side of eternity for every situation, carte blanche. There are just situations where sin and brokenness and death uh, invade and we suffer and it hurts. But we are promised that in eternity, God's going to make all the sad things untrue. That, that he's going to take what's broken and he's actively restoring and redeeming it. That even if we don't experience wholeness or healing on this side of eternity, we can and will experience wholeness and healing on the other side. That life with God is the ultimate good and that is our hope. So even if we have nothing else, we have the promise <clears throat> that we will have and can have and enjoy eternity with God forever. Full stop. And there is nothing better. If there's that longing in your soul that you're like, something feels unright, that can be filled in. I read this week by a guy named Ronald Rollheiser, and he talks about this nostalgia for eternity. That we have this longing deep within our soul that things aren't as they should be. And, and we're, we believe and know that one day they will be that they will be restored, that God is going to make all things new. And so when the world crumbles around us and when it's chaotic and when there's hurts and suffering, as Jesus followers, because we have that hope, we get to be the one to enter into situations with a non-anxious presence because our future is secure regardless of what the future holds. I think of someone in the Old Testament like Jeremiah who, who God's, one of his prophetic words or images that God gave uh, him to do in the middle, this, this city is under siege, okay? They're getting, the people of Israel are getting ready to get cast out into exile. So the city is under military attack and God tells Jeremiah, go buy a field. Go buy a field. That's probably the last thing I'm thinking of when uh, Danville comes under military attack, I'm not looking for investment opportunities at that point. But what God was telling Jeremiah was, you, you understand, like, uh, things are going to be secure. You go put your roots down because you know that, yeah, this is temporary and it's bad, but there's something coming on the other side of this. There's something coming that gives us hope and so we, can, we don't have to be all worked up and worried. We don't have to be just a ball of anxious energy. We can enter into situations because our hope is eternal and our hope is secure. We can enter into situations as a non-anxious presence, realizing that our future is secure, that our peace goes beyond our circumstances or the circumstances of the world around us, that because Jesus died on the cross, and because Jesus was raised back to life, we have a future. Full stop. That because Jesus died on the cross, and because Jesus was raised back to life, we don't have to be anxious about what the future holds. We have hope. And then we get to be conduits and distributors of that hope. We get to dole it out to others as we go, hey, it, it, people go, oh, my world's a mess right now. Things seem like they're falling apart. And we get to go, do you want your future to be secure? Do you want to have a hope that uh, far supersedes the situation that you're in right now? 
So we can be non-anxious presence because we have a hope, because we have a future on the other side of whatever it is that we're facing right now. And here's the second thing is this. This is what it beckons us to do. Because we have that hope, as Jesus followers, we run towards the problems with both spiritual and physical hope. As Jesus followers, we run towards the problems with both spiritual and physical hope. Where did we find Paul in the midst of the, the, the storm? Was he cowering? Was, was he hidden away, worried about what might happen? Was he just like, oh, this is probably it. I'm just gonna like go build my compound. I'm gonna go do my thing and let the world fall apart around me? No, he was being a chef for the people on the boat. We get to enter into situations that are full of panic and chaos and fear. And we get to run towards them because we know that what we have to offer is the hope of eternity. And that hope is secure like we just talked about. We get to take an active and positive influence while the world is chaotic and brings order to it. Scripture reminds us that we as Jesus followers are the aroma of Christ that when we enter into situations, Christ and the Holy Spirit enters with us. We don't do it alone. And as Christ and the Holy Spirit and, and the God of the universe enters into those situations with us, so does his peace, so does his mercy, so does his, so does his grace. But in order for that to happen, we as agents of reconciliation have to run towards the bad. When, think about it this way. When is light needed the most? In the middle of darkness. You guys remember July 4th weekend, that bad storm that had us without power for a few days up to, or a few hours up to a few days? I, I, for some reason, my street is, is like, I don't realize how tree-lined it is until all of the trees block out the, the street lights or until there are no street lights. And it is pitch black. Like it, is, it was nothing. That was the moment where my little flashlight the most so I could see in the darkness. And the same is true for our world. When the world breaks, when it's chaotic, when it's painful, those are the moments that it needs Jesus the most. And so as Jesus followers, our call is not to isolate and to run away, but instead run into the hard run into the tumultuous, run into the painful, actively pursue it because that's the hope that it needs. And is this not what Jesus did for us? When the world was at its worst, while we were still sinners, not when we got cleaned up, not when things looked pretty, not when things were all put together, but while we were still sinners, while we were still actively opposed to the God of creation, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That the God of creation put on skin and bone and entered into our mess to provide light in the darkness, hope for the uncertainty. We need light most in the presence of darkness, and so we as Jesus followers can run into the dark situations. 
There's a book called The Triumph of Christianity by Rodney Stark. And it's been, uh, one of the things I'm grateful for, it's been recorded over several books and several accounts and several different uh, epidemics and and pandemics that have swept over the world. Uh, But he records uh, the year 165 in the Roman world, there was an epidemic of what, most scholars think to be smallpox, one of the first smallpox outbreaks that took place. And it just wreaked havoc on um, cities and population centers and things of that nature. And um, the result of those who had like some upwards mobility and, and the ability to uh, like get out of Dodge was to get out of Dodge. And so what happened was the people who were trained, like the doctors, went, yeah, this seems kind of messy. And they all took off for the countryside where they could isolate. Uh, There's recordings of all of the governmental leaders taking off in the middle of chaos because they didn't want to get infected. And what happens time and time again is there's recordings of Jesus followers who actively ran towards the hard, who actively ran towards the, the inevitable death and suffering so that they could be lights in the middle of darkness. Hear this. This is what uh, Stark writes. <clears throat> but for those who could not flee, the typical response was tr- to try and avoid any contact with the afflicted since it was understood that the disease was contagious. Hence, when their first symptoms appeared, victims were often thrown into the streets where their dead and dying lay in piles. In a pastoral letter written during the second epidemic in 251, uh, there was a bishop that describes the events in Alexandria. At the first onset of disease, they, the pagans, pushed their sufferer away and fled from their dearest by throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. As for actions, Christians met the obligation to care for the sick rather than desert them and thereby saved enormous numbers of their lives. There's an author that wrote in his book, under the circumstances prevailing in this era, even quite elementary nursing would greatly reduce mortality. Simple provision of food and water, for instance, would allow persons who are temporarily too weak to cope for themselves to recover instead of perishing immediately. Indeed, the impact of Christian mercy was so evident that in the 4th century, when the Emperor Julian attempted to restore paganism as, a, uh, as the cult religion of the kingdom, he exhorted the pagan priesthood to compete with Christian charities. He says, let them be your example because look how good they're doing this. Christians believed in life everlasting At most, pagans believed in an unattractive existence in the underworld. Thus, it would have been hard for them to compete because there was a hope that went far beyond that. Faith mattered. And what we see happening time and time again through the pandemics, the epidemics, the the outbreaks in human history is Christians showing a distinct brand of mercy, a distinct brand of Witness a distinct brand of presence that when things get hard, Christians had the ability to run into the midst of the hard instead of running away from. So here's my question for us today. Are we committed to following Jesus in this way? As a church family, are we committed to following Jesus through the practice of presence? 
when things in our world feel uncomfortable? Do we withdraw or do we take new ground? When chaos reigns and you see stuff on news and it's just everything is uncertain, are, are we uh, withdrawing and going, uh, I just, I'm just going to stay to myself. I have a hope in a, an eternity that is secure, so that's good enough for me. Or do, are we active lights in the darkness? Are we active agents of reconciliation? Are we drawn towards that or away from that? And my goal is not to shame us today because that doesn't, it's not holy. It doesn't lead to anything good. But my goal is to uh, begin this conversation of when things in our world get hard, what is our natural response? And, and as I prepared this week, I heard the responses because I heard the responses in me. So I hear the responses from us. <sighs> Jordan, I just, I got to, I have a lot going on right now. And I don't know if I have enough on my plate to also go, or I don't know if I have enough margin on my plate to also go enter into other people's hard. I've got hard of my own going on right now. I full well believe that. Our lives are busy, our lives are chaotic, and because our lives are busy and chaotic, our lives are, are full of heartache and pain. To be human is to know the experience of pain and suffering and hurt and chaos. So no, you don't have the capacity to, to take these things on. You just don't. You can't put the world on your back and save it. But I want to be super clear this morning. That's not what I'm asking us to do. Because that, that presupposes that it's you or that's I that's the one that's entering into situations and providing the hope and providing the peace. Like, I've got to button things up so that I can be put together so I can enter into someone else's situation and be the one to calm the storm. That's, that's not what Jesus is asking Jesus isn't asking us to be the hope and the peace. He's just asking us to point to the one that is. The one, he's asking us to point to the one that took the, the, the chaos of the uncreated and unordered cosmos and molded and shaped it and spoke with his words and breathed out everything that we see uh, around us and among us today. He's asking us uh, to point to the one that quieted the minds of those who are ravaged and possessed by demons. He's asking us to, to point back to the one who changed the trajectories of lives by just simply telling people just to get up and walk. He's asking us to point to the one who, like we talked about earlier, who left his throne in heaven not worried about what might happen, but instead full of compassion and full of love and entered in to the hard and the difficult uh, landscape on the earth so that he could be a light in the darkness. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to have our lives put together. We don't have to have everything be uh, unchaotic in our lives. We just have to point them towards the one that is, that as we bring people to Jesus, we trust that he's big enough and God enough to take care of those situations. We have hope as Jesus followers. And it's secure and it's certain. 
And then we get to run into hard situations because of that hope. Because of that hope, we don't have to be fearful of what may come because we, we know what will come. We know that Jesus is actively ruling and reigning, that he's reconciling all people, all things to himself, that there's a new heaven and a new earth. He's restoring all things. And so as we enter into the hard, as we enter into the chaotic, as we enter into the difficult, we point people back to the one that loves them far more than we ever could. We get to help open their eyes up to the one that loves them dearly. He's always there. I talked about this with someone this morning. God is always present. He's not going anywhere. But we get to help open people's eyes up to let them see that he's in the middle of their situations, wanting to rule and reign and bring peace. We can Sherpa people through the challenges of life, not being the end-all, be-all ourselves, but pointing the way, guiding the way to the one that is. So, Father, as we close our time today, uh, we fix our eyes on you. <clears throat> God, we recognize that our world is so messy and chaotic. But, Lord, you are sure, you are certain, and we put our trust, we put our hope in you. And Lord, we ask that when things get difficult, help establish in our hearts as followers of you that certainty. But then will you propel us into the chaos of the world that we might be able to bring light into the darkness? Lord, we cannot do this apart from you. But we know that you've promised to help us. So we are asking for that help. And as we do, we will give you all the glory and the honor and the praise because you're worthy of it all. So we ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.